We'd Like a Word. Welcome to part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word, talking about becoming a children's author and illustrator with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And Julia Donaldson. I don't know, she must be the biggest children's author in Britain? Um, yeah, I think probably her and David Williams, I think between them, have probably got the crown at the moment. Well, well she's J.K.'s she, still there, isn't she? J.K.'s still there. Okay, maybe of, of, a, of a younger age then, of a younger age. And she's the only one whose lyrics and I, I've memorised, and Ted Chaplin, also children's author and illustrator. So here we are in Ted's very tidy and organised studio. Well, tell us a bit about the writing. Tell us a bit about the writing. So over on this wall, you've got storyboards and part of the text. This isn't actually the text. Those are notes, visual notes for me. Um, so what I've done is uh, this is a picture book and picture books generally fit a standard format of uh, you know, 24 24 illustrations or 24 illustrated pages. And um, I've printed, I've sort of sketched it in, planned it out, where things will go, and then looked at that. And then I've, this is a first version and I've made notes on that. Um, what, I, what I do with these then is I take them into Photoshop and then I will add the text and then rejig things around so that I know where things might go so that the text will work with the images. So first of all, I will write, this, write my text and then I'll start planning out the illustrations. And then I have to take these two things and wedge them together. And then sometimes that means reworking some of the text because you're constantly the text is never done you're constantly working on it then then also then fitting it in with how the images will flow so that it makes sense and the right text goes with the right images or you create an image that goes with that text and whether it's in the right place so whether it's on the right page um so it makes sense visually for when you know if a child opens it up and there's the two pages on either side, you want it to make sense. You don't want it to be the, the one that they need to see is on the other side of the page. So that's, I, I guess that's reasonably obvious, but you know, until you start doing it, you don't really sort of have to think about that sort of stuff. And then there's the composition as well. So the compositions is very important to me. And it's something that I spend quite a lot of time thinking about and making sure that I'm positioning things within the frame, elements within the frame, characters or action, whatever it is, where people are going to look. In, in the art world, there's a system of rules for this, um, the the the, uh, the golden ratio um, and dynamic symmetry grids, grids and um, various different tools that artists employ and have employed since the beginning of time, which, uh, you know, help us create something that's very comfortable on the page. Well, these actually look as if they're slightly they're a little bit further on from storyboards. I mean, these are roughs, aren't they? These are these are yeah. these are layouts. These are proper roughs. These actually look as, as you said, you scan these in and then you will build the finished illustration work onto the top of this. These are your rough, roughs of each page. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. So I know I know exactly what, what um, if I'm going to spend, my, my, my work's very detailed and it takes, and I tend to take a, a reasonable amount of time over it. So I don't want to end up working something in too far and then going too far with it and spending a lot of time and realising that I've, um, I've maybe got the composition not great or I've got I you know I've, I've missed something out so I tend to tend to sketch stuff in first and rough it in um, but so when we were talking to Julia and we will be talking to Julia and hearing from Julia throughout the podcast throughout each part of it so she writes you know she thinks very hard about what she writes but she doesn't so much have to think about 
fitting the text on the page. She does her thing and, and that leads the way. It's her story. And then the illustrator, whether it's Axel Scheffler or whoever else, then follows her lead. But it sounds a lot more complicated when you're doing both because you're, well, I've written it, but now I'm, now I'm changing it to match my the other side of my head or rather, rather than just handing, it's not, you're you, not handing yeah. it over to another version of yourself to say, well, this is it, what it is. You work with it. Yeah, I don't, I don't really change the text. I wouldn't change the, the, the story. Well, what, what about how many words you can fit into the page? Yeah, so then I, I definitely consider. Um, I'll have an idea for each page. Um, so when I when I write the story and when I'm when I read the text back to myself, I, I know exactly. What, I can I can see what's happening in the book in my mind, and I know what I think's happening. So then I will sketch it out. So the the biggest question I have for myself then is once I've drawn that, I usually draw that and I don't think about where the text's going to go, and then I think. Hmm. I wonder where the text would go if I'm going to draw it like this, mm. and and then they meet. Other, otherwise, I'd be considering too many things, and I I know what I'm looking at. So sometimes I will draw one, and then I'll think, oh, actually, if this was a movie, because I'm from that world, then I just put the camera somewhere else and show the scene from a different angle. So then I'll go and draw it again. So I'm I'm explaining. I'm I'm. Uh, visualizing the same scene, but maybe from a different angle, which then frees up an area to put the text in. There is a fine line between where a, an illustrated storybook ends and sequential art, like you get in a comic or graphic novel, begins. Uh, the big difference tends to be that graphic novels are generally driven by dialogue, whereas you know this sort of thing is driven much more by exposition or by an actual story being told on the page. I mean, looking at the roughs we've got here, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of space for text so is this something that's driven mostly by the characters uh, speaking or is or does are there sort of short sentences on each page explaining the action yeah very very short sentences yeah, um yeah. not very much text in this one and actually the the one i'm working on at the moment um you know it's only about 850 words um for the whole book so i was trying to keep it trying to keep the picture books to an absolute minimum so that the readers get an idea of the story but then they fill in through the pictures the rest of the story that wonderful moment you get as a child where you end up looking at the illustrations in a book for a huge amount of time and building a, a story that goes with them and you remember things that almost weren't there in the text because you know I, you can show so much in in the illustrations as well so much extra stuff mm -hmm. along with that so I don't need to convey everything through the Well, text. younger kids, they like simplicity, don't they? I mean, they, they like the Mr. Yeah. Man, they like Spot the Dog, they like things like that. But when they get to the sort of age I, I guess this is aimed at, which is, I mean, this to me looks as if, are you aiming at the sort of 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds sort of thing, maybe slightly? Yeah, slightly younger for slightly younger for this one, but yeah. somewhere around there, it's 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 that borderline between picture book and then, yeah, you know, 8 like to 12. Complexity. I mean, they love that. I mean, people like Corky Paul, yeah. you know, yeah. absolutely fills his frames with little details and things. You know, he said, oh, look, it's a parrot hidden right down there. They love that sort of thing. Well, although the one that we're looking at here is one of a series, so this, this actually ends on a cliffhanger. Kind of, it, the story da, is complete, da, da. but then there's an element there that leads into the next story do we have a, a working title or a code name <laughs> or a code name <laughs> this one that we're looking at is um one of the beth and Ginny adventures that i've been working on okay this that's one fine. this one involves some pirate treasure Hurrah. and a few other things uh, beth and Ginny and the pirate treasure mm, maybe um, well let's hear some more from julia donaldson we've loads of you got in touch and uh 
you know, we're quite lazy. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, Steve's laughing because it's true. And uh, thanks very much for getting in touch with all the questions which we put to her. On the animation side, so Karen, a teacher in a primary school in Chalfont, St. Giles, she's saying you're her favourite. She's read your book so many times in her teaching yeah. career. And also Room on the Broom every night for six months to one of her daughters, Jessica. You are allowed to drop it behind the radiator. <laughs> she was saying well, two things about the television side. One, how did it feel about basically being Christmas Day entertainment on the BBC? And what input do you have into the animation of your books? Um, well, the first question, that is great that no one television on Christmas Day. I mean, I was brought up never to watch television on Christmas Day, but I've broken that rule, you know, so I'll sit around with the family. Obviously, that's very flattering, really, that they're on, on Christmas Day. Yeah, they're very, a very lovely company, and they always consult Axel and me, right, you know, several times throughout the whole procedure. They're not really allowed to use any extraneous words that aren't in the book, but sometimes I will adapt the words slightly to make um, keep the rhythm, but give the characters a tiny bit more to say, and the narrator a little bit less to say. You know, so I can, I, you know, I'm quite flexible. I'm used to because I because I have illustrators. I'm used already to writing something, and then someone else runs off does something with it. So, mm. so I can be, you know, a, a bit giving to this uh, to the animators. But yeah, in the end, it is a different medium, and I've got to respect that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, would be a, it would be a different story if they decided to spin the graph out to a full hour and a half, two hour long movie. Oh, you have turned it down. Initially, yeah. the offers I got were either that, I did have a Hollywood offer to make it into a 90 minute film. I knew they would just take those caps and make up some story about them going yep. to the moon or something. That's, the graph isn't really about the character, it's really a, a fable, you know. Um, and then- Well, it's the actually all thing, about the mouse, isn't it? The mouse is the star, yeah. really. <laughs> it's, about, it's a trickster tale, really, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And, um, and then I would get offers to make it into a series of 30, 13 episodes where the gruffer and the mouse learn to count or they learn about fruit or something. I just didn't want that at all. Well, on just, on just, the Gruffalo, We've got a question from nine-year-old Bella in Belfast, and she's asking two questions. One is, what was the inspiration for the character of the Gruffalo? And do you have any advice for a nine-year-old wannabe writer slash illustrator? Okay. There wasn't really an inspiration for the character of Gruffalo. It was just that I couldn't get anything drawing with Tiger. I was going to do it about a tiger. And then I thought I'd better create an imaginary character that ended in O because that rhymes with doesn't he know or oh, help oh no. And so it just had to be mm -mm, O to fit the rhythm. Grrr, sounded good because it was gruff, you know, scary. And Gruffalo's got funny because it sounded like Buffalo. And he could have looked like anything, you know, so there wasn't, I didn't have this picture of Gruffalo at all in my mind. And what was the other part of the question? Uh, in, um, advice, advice for a, a nine-year-old wannabe writer. Yeah, well, you know, I think everyone does it the way they want to do it, really. But I, I, I often say to children, think of a character, give them a problem, 
and then make the problem get worse before it gets better. You want it to get better in the end, but don't just let them solve their problem too soon. So returning to your course, how do people get hold of this? Uh, where will they go for it? Is it all going to be okay, on the BBC website? Well, I think they'll just probably have to Google BBC Maestro and find out, because I don't know exactly, but you have to pay. It's not free. £80, uh, pounds maybe? Right, it might be something like that. And then, then when you've gone online and you've got the course, it's not like every week, you know, you just do it at your own speed and there's all these different episodes of about quarter an hour each. And each, at the end of each episode, I have a little a writing exercise but I don't mark I can't mark them but it's just something to do something to try out if you're in a writer's group or whatever so yeah there are little bits of homework. Do you feel that people like Marie Kondo have stolen the wisdom from a squash and a squeeze with all these decluttering books? Oh I see <laughs> I'm not to that yeah I'm not very good at decluttering myself we actually we actually and our car broken into and four suitcases as full of stuff were stolen and my handbag. Um, the only advantage to that is I can start to clutter up again. I can start to buy things and fill up the house again. And yeah, I'm not very good decluttering. Oh no, this is my all my illusions are shattered because that's the advice <laughs> I give people when they say they haven't got enough room. I start by suggesting they take in lots of bits and bobs like in the songs and then gradually discard them and so they never really welcome that advice though (laughs) so i suppose the question we must ask is is what's next for you because i mean was it 160 books or something i mean i I know that all are in print and there's a lot of stuff that only goes to schools etc but uh still plenty of stories still plenty um, of stories to tell yeah but i've got a new one that just coming out next week called The Woolly Bear Caterpillar. And that's a true story in a way. It's, it's, it's like an ugly touching story, but it's about a very humble caterpillar and some very gaudy, boastful um, caterpillars and the sort of moths they all turn into, which was inspired by a um, visit to the Sussex Wildlife Trust, you know, an event that the Sussex Wildlife Trust. So that's coming up. I'm also going to be acting i've got a little cameo role the, the bbc are dramatizing my princess mirabelle stories for slightly older children in the autumn and i've actually been acting um children's writer who visits the library so that was a very difficult role to get into <laughs> so i've been doing that and um and i've also been recording poems and songs with my grandchildren for there's a book called rock by rumpus which is um, an anthology that I've compiled. Of It starts with all juggling the baby about on your knees sort of rhymes, and it's got, you know, round and round the gun finger rhymes, stomping about rhymes, it goes up to playground chants and things. And we've been having a lovely time, actually, in recording studios with the grandchildren, uh, preparing the CD that's going to accompany that book. So all quite varied, really, different projects. Um, not retiring yet, then. <laughs> Not retiring yet. <laughs> I've got um, a few more questions from listeners. So Janice Staines near Coventry, regular listener. A couple of questions. Do you have ambitions to write adult fiction? And if so, what genre? Not really. I have written I have written a book for teenagers called Running on the Cracks. And that was then made into a play, um, which 
went on tour and and it was a, more a play for adults and teens. I do still sometimes write songs, sort of grown-up songs. I think there's so many people out there who do that so so well. So no, I'm not. Well, what's, what's the most recent? What are you reading at the minute? Well, I'm in a book group, so we've been reading Hamlet um, by Maggie O'Farrell, and I were going to read Scoop by Evelyn Waugh. But in between those, I usually try and fit two, one or two books in between. So I'm reading quite fun murder mystery book called The Postscript Murders, about murders, and it's all about old people. It's a little bit like Richard, um, you know, what's awesome. Um, yeah. And actually, I think the author of this one, Ellie Griffiths, she was a bit taken aback when her book came out at the same time. Obviously, she had no idea he was going to write a similar book. But I've read his, and if anything, I think this one's going to have the edge. Ted Chaplin, who's children's author and illustrator, he was asking, to what extent do you feel it's appropriate or can you introduce fear and how dark can you go? Well, you know, I think no one child's quite like another child. So... And there's so many books out there, so I think just write what you want to write. And, they, you know, Auntie Mabel won't probably buy it if she thinks it's too dark for her particular niece or nephew. I mean, talking about fear, there was one time when I was at a book festival and we were doing Rumour and the Broom on the stage and the dragon, you know, I thought the children would be very scared of the dragon. But afterwards, one parent said to me, my child doesn't mind the dragon, they're so scared of the wind. We had these wind sticks with sort of grey ribbons and this child was freaked out by the wind. So you never really know what's going to scare, scare one child. Um, and they're not made of porcelain. I think kids like a little bit of scaring, don't they? Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, my, all of my children were fascinated by the troll and the three billy goats gruff and I had to make them all birthday cakes of I would make two cakes the brown field and the green field and the wiggly blue icing sugar river and the brown chocolate finger bridge in between and act out that story for them because that was well, that explains the troll book as well which was another yeah. favorite <laughs> yeah well that was a sort of take on that yeah, yeah, have you yeah. been <laughs> approached by Bake Off not yet. They're missing a trick there. Um, actually, I have been approached by um, been approached by Strictly Come Dancing, but I turned that one down. I'm always being approached by quiz programs, but I'm so ashamed of my hopeless general knowledge, and I'm so competitive. Actually, I'd be distraught if I didn't win, so I'd, I always say no to those. So. Julia Donaldson. There was an interesting question there from Ted Chaplin. Ted Chaplin, what did you make of her answer to Ted Chaplin's question? I think it was really good. It was very helpful. Understanding that everybody's different. I mean, you see, with children's books, we hear that, unlike with adult books, it doesn't seem as free. I suppose you're free to write what you like, but agents and publishers do seem to have particular rules that I can feel a bit constricting at times, although I guess if you're Julia Donaldson, maybe you have the clout to not have to pay so much attention. 
It's a weird thing. I mean, I mean, back in 2000 and, oh gosh, 2006 now, I got picked to be the illustrator for the National Children's Book Fair. So every school in the UK had posters of my artwork on the school fences and on the brochures and that. And I, what they wanted, Pirates was very much the theme at the time because the first Pirates of the Caribbean film would come out. So I did these two pirates leaning in over a treasure chest and I gave them really long necks and they freaked out with these long necks. I had to eventually put some bodies leaning in as well to cover up the long necks but I just wanted to make a little little craning to see the treasure but they, they they go for the strangest things they find the strangest things to find have you have you had when you know showing your work to agents and or advisors or whatever things that they thought they weren't so keen on not not because of the quality but because of the content yes occasionally I've got some bird trapping in one book and, where, and you're disapproving of the bird trapping yeah the 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 you know the bad guys you know were um going to be foiled in this bird trapping but um i was told that that would be wouldn't wouldn't be ideal and i i've kind of taken the line now that i'm going to write what i feel is the right thing to do and then take it from there so i liked julia's advice of you know write what you think the story should be because there's all everyone everyone's always going to there's always going to be someone with a different opinion well it strikes me you've got the perfect opportunity there to, to highlight the issues of bird trapping and egg stealing and things like that you know which which is a national an international problem in terms of smuggling wildlife and on that i like to think politically correct note we come to the end of part two of this episode of weed like a word with me paul waters and me stephen Goldman, and julia donaldson and ted chaplin Join us for part three.